Good afternoon, fellow directors, past presidents, members, and guests. Welcome to the 117th season of the Empire Club of Canada. My name is Antoinette Tamilo. I'm the president of the Empire Club of Canada and your host for today's virtual event, Getting to Net Zero, the Role of Canada's Transportation Sector, which is part of the Fuel for Thought virtual event series, a collaboration between the Empire Club of Canada and the Canada Fuels Association. I'd like to begin this afternoon with an acknowledgement that the land we are broadcasting from is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis peoples. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, for those of you tuning in from regions across the country today, we encourage you to learn more about the traditional territory on which you work or live. I now want to take a moment to recognize our sponsors who generously support the Empire Club and make these events possible. Thank you to our partner for the Fuel for Thought virtual event series, the Canadian Fuels Association, and to our seasoned sponsors, Waste Connections of Canada and the Canadian Bankers Association. I also want to thank our event partner, VBC and LiveMeeting.ca for webcasting today's event. Now for a few logistical items. First, if you're finding your internet feed is slow, please click the Switch Streams button on the right-hand side of the screen. And don't hesitate to press the Request for Help button if you are experiencing difficulties, our team will be happy to assist you. I also just want to remind everyone participating that this is an interactive event. Although a recording of this event will be made available, those attending live are encouraged to engage with our speakers today by taking advantage of the question box to the right of your screen. We have allotted some time for Q&A towards the end of the discussion. We also invite you to share your thoughts on social media using our hashtag Empire Club of Canada and hashtag driving to 2050, which you can also find in the corner of your viewer throughout the event. It is now my pleasure to call this virtual meeting to order. In order to make the most of our time today, I would like to very briefly introduce our panelists and then hand over to them to get the discussion started. Joining us today is Chris Smith, Executive Vice President of Suncor. In this role, Chris is responsible for the operations of Suncor's refining network in North America, including the distribution and marketing of refined products under the Petro-Canada brand, as well as Suncor's renewable energy business. Peter Tertsakian, Deputy Director of ARC Energy Research Institute as a respected public speaker, podcaster, blogger, and author. Peter has devoted his career to energy, first as a geophysicist, then as an economist and investment strategist. And Marin Smith is a fellow at the Simon Fraser University Morris G. Wask, J. Wask Center for Dialogue 
and the founder and executive director of Clean Energy Canada, a leading think tank at advancing clean energy and climate solutions. If you'd like to learn more about our panelists, you can find their full bios by scrolling down below the video window on your screen. Now, I'd like to hand over to Chris to get the discussion started. Chris, over to you. Thanks very much, Antoinette, and, and thank you. I'll say this on behalf of myself, uh, Marin, and Peter. Thanks to the Empire Club for inviting us today uh, for this discussion, um, which I'm very much looking forward to. I know Marin and Peter are as well. And so we're going to have a discussion for the next 30 minutes and then open up for q and I'll pay, play a little bit of the moderator role um, here, though I'll probably can't help myself and will need want to chip in as well, too. Um, and we definitely, obviously, the focus is we want to talk about the role the transportation sector will, will play in the energy transition in Canada. Uh, but I thought I'd start uh, first with, uh, with Marin and Peter. And, and Marin, maybe I'll ask you first. It's just, just from the perspective of net zero and net zero by 2050 and that goal and challenge globally, but what it means for Canadians and what you think it represents and how you, how you think uh, we should be thinking about that. Oh, Marin, I think you're on mute. The, the, the COVID line. Yeah. So for me, when I hear net zero by 2050, you know, what I hear is opportunity. Um, Canada has such an abundance of clean energy potential. Uh, and already our grid is 83% emission free. And so the potential for Canada in the clean energy sector and more importantly, making low carbon products, low carbon goods and services, things like metals. Right now we have the lowest carbon aluminum in the world, for example. Uh, so other products. So opportunity is top of mind, along with the jobs that come with that. You know, we hear President Biden say it again when he hears climate action. Uh, I think of that as the low carbon energy transition. It's all about jobs, jobs, jobs. And we'll be releasing a report next month that'll show that there will be a gain of 200,000 plus jobs uh, if we uh, put in place the climate plan that the federal government has to get us to towards net zero by 2050. Um, another thing I hear is it's an opportunity for us to secure our supply chain. We've just talked a lot about supply chains over the last 14, 15 months. And as we rebuild and, and retool our economy to be lower carbon uh, and using cleaner energy, it's an opportunity for us to really ensure that we're making things here in Canada. So uh, batteries, I'm sure we'll talk about them later, but it's a great example. Rather than just sell our metals and minerals to somebody else uh, and have them turn them into batteries and buy them back, we could actually secure the supply chain and the jobs here. Um, and you know, a couple of other things, cleaner air you know we are all uh, in people living in major cities toronto vancouver montreal air quality is an issue and as we move off of fossil fuels to electricity hydrogen we're going to be breathing cleaner air and that means for asthmatics like me that's a big issue and then finally obviously responsibility we're going to be able to meet those climate commitments that we've made and do our part to keeping the globe's temperatures uh, from warming more than one and a half degrees. And uh, the IEA pointed out last week that rich countries like Canada need to be 
the ones that lead and do this first. You actually asked about what's going to be like for the average Canadian. And I would say for them, life's not going to be much different. You know, their houses are going to be more efficient and heated with heat pumps, and that'll be very comfortable. Um, their cars are going to be cooler, faster, uh, you know, fueled by things other than fossil fuels, hydrogen or electricity primarily for cars. Uh, you know, we'll still be going on vacations and ordering takeout and, uh, you know, life will be similar to what it is right now. Um, but I would stress that all of this requires Canada to take action now. Uh, you know, in order for us to get to net zero by 2050, it's not about waiting till the decade before. It's all about taking action now. Great. Thank, thanks very much, Mayor. I do look forward to a future of traveling to take vacations, <laughs> for sure. Um, Peter, how about yourself, 2050? What, how, what, what, what do you think about these goals uh, Canada set for itself? Uh, how Canadians yeah. think about it? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the goal is pretty clear to net out our carbon emissions. In other words, the amount that uh, we emit minus the amount that we abate uh, has to equal zero by 2050. And it has to be done across uh, the entire economy, which effectively is equivalent to like renovating the entire economy that has been built up over the last hundred and some years on that dominantly a fossil fuel fueled infrastructure. Um, this is uh, not easy to accommodate as the international energy agency's report would indicate. So there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, you know, I don't dispute um, that some of the points that Marin made about the opportunity. Absolutely, uh, we've got it all here. Um, but getting to that point uh, does pose uh, many issues because uh, at the end of the day, repiping and rewiring the economy, uh, all with the overlay of maintaining prosperity, maintaining environmental sustainability in dimensions other than just emissions, uh, maintaining um, the social issues, which are a big issue of transitioning workforces of people, particularly people who are uh, in the later stage of their careers and transitioning them to uh, the new world. Um, you know, the people are going to have to make changes. Uh, maybe that's where I would uh, debate a little bit with Marin. There's no question, even the uh, International Energy Agency report highlighted that 55% of the GHG reductions are going to have to come from behavioral change. Now, a lot of that behavioral change is in what people buy as their, say, their next vehicle, which we're going to talk about, or their uh, next furnace or whatever. Uh, so, but, you know, there's, there's a lot of education to be done. And then finally, Canada is a huge country. Uh, with a lot of regional diversification, whether it's north to the Arctic or and the communities up there or south, east, west, every region has a different circumstance. And that is actually one of the biggest issues uh, within Canada, because at the end of the day, to get to near net zero by 2050, uh, hate to use something that's over, overused, you know, it's going to have to be a team effort. And uh, if we don't have a team effort, and we don't overcome the social political issues, um, it's going to be a lot harder. Yeah, no, thanks, Peter. And I think both yourself and Marin, uh, you know, highlight uh, two key words, I think, this conversation, challenge and opportunity, and, and ourselves working as, as uh, society, industry, governments, uh, other, other stakeholders, and kind of navigating through that opportunity and that challenge over the next mm -hmm two and a half decades. Well, maybe I'll transition this conversation to transportation specifically. Um, and 
you know, transportation obviously represents a significant amount of um, greenhouse gas emissions um, globally and also in the country. Um, and, and we're seeing a transition uh, I'd, I'd say that my view, the front end of a transition and whether we want to talk about uh, electric vehicles or low carbon fuel standards, but there's certainly regulatory and policy um, uh, moves in that direction. Um, but I think maybe what we should tee up is there's both challenges and strengths in this space of, of the transformation or transition of our transportation systems. And, and maybe we'll start with the challenges and then, and then talk a bit about the strengths. And maybe Peter, I'll ask you uh, first is just from the perspective of moving the transportation system infrastructure of Canada to a lower emission transportation system, mm -hmm. what challenges would you, you know, from your seat, do you see? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Okay. So we've got, uh, you know, two categories of capital stock that have to be turned over the vehicle fleet. And then the, uh, to, a certain, to uh, a certain degree, the infrastructure for electrification. Um, so for established, let's do the latter first. For established urban centers, the electrification issue is much less of an issue. But as you get into uh, fringes away from major centers, then uh, electrification of mobility becomes more difficult. Uh, not saying it's impossible, but it becomes more costly as well. And so there's a question of uh, who pays and how it's all going to be done and the time frame in which it's going to be done. So there's that side. The turnover of the vehicle fleet uh, is underway. Uh, the numbers for electrifying ve electric vehicle sales, et cetera, are going up. Uh, e even so, at the rate they're going up, there is a lot to be done. And then there's different classes of vehicles that uh, have to be turned out. So right now we've got sort of the top down from the light duty vehicle market, the luxury cars turning over first, but that has to permeate into the mass market. Um, and then of course there's the, uh, the heavier duty vehicles and so on. So, you know, there's a uh, good encouraging signs that the, the market forces with the drop in vehicle uh, battery prices and so on, are, are happening. So which, you know, in my opinion, what you're going to see is uh, pretty good adoption rates up to a certain point. And then all of a sudden, you know, it, it, there's going to be resistance if the infrastructure doesn't, uh, uh, turnover doesn't keep up. And then maybe, you know, I'll probably stop there, but there's another important issue uh, when it comes to the turnover of the vehicle fleet. It's not just about how many electric vehicles you sell. It's about also taking combustion engine vehicles out of the fleet because they tend to linger in the fleet for a long time. But I'll come back to that maybe and stop yeah. talking there. No, thanks, Peter. I think it's, uh, you know, and some, obviously we look at that very closely in, in my business and um, gasoline demand's actually been going up for the last number of years and now COVID's happened, and, which has thrown a, a wrinkle into, into demand is there's been less, less movement, but now as restrictions are starting to be released, we're starting to see more demand, but we're starting to see more penetration of EVs uh, to your point as well. But to put that in context, I think in Canada right now, EVs are 3% of, of new vehicle sales and the average vehicle lasts 12 plus years. And so turning over a car park and then what the points of resistance are, as you just described, is how quickly does that penetration happen and, and how long will our, our um, our uh, uh, vehicle fleet, uh, you know, be in a place where where 
there's not a tipping point one way yeah. or one way yeah. or the other. Um, but but Marin, uh, you know, in, in terms of uh, of opportunities that uh, that you see in in the transportation sector, because um, there's lots of there's challenges as, as Peter just said, and we'll probably touch on some others like geography, climate, and just the ability or pace of penetration or turnover given the infrastructure. Um, what, on the opportunity side, what do you see? Sure. Well, and uh, but I'd love to come back to the challenges because I actually um, see some other challenges. Well, in please uh, go ahead if you'd like to actually start there. Because I think building on what um, Peter said first about getting to net zero and the culture change that the IEA signaled, uh, I think those are some of our biggest challenges in Canada. And I would name three. Um, first is nimbleness. Uh, second is the fear of interfering in the market. And third is uh, polarization versus education. Um, so on nimbleness, I would just say, you know, while Canada uh, likes to be a leader, Canada is never really jumping at the bit to be the first. And uh, we are slow to change. Um, we, we rarely grab opportunities. We stakeholder them to death. Um, and right now this energy transition is happening quickly. And so, you know, we really need to make plans and, you know, help to transition both the supply of vehicles, making sure that we get uh, the, the right cars, zero emission vehicles, whether they're electric vehicles uh, or hydrogen, you know, there needs to be initiatives to help get that supply and to help increase the demand. Um, so our nimbleness uh, is, I'd say, a challenge culturally. Um, you know, fear of interfering in the market. Uh, it was a lot of chatter about that. Let's not pick winners. Um, but again, we're seeing countries like the UK, the EU, uh, Korea, where they are choosing, you know, we are going to invest in an electric vehicle system. We are going to invest in hydrogen and green hydrogen and the infrastructure. We as a, you know, a country are going to make this decision because we're moving to net zero and we are going to accelerate um, this by, you know, whether it's um, scaling up demand by having governments procure or providing the infrastructure support to transition out that infrastructure that uh, Peter talked about, that that's, that's a big investment. Um, but we're seeing other countries create industrial strategies, uh, industrial policy to move this more quickly. Uh, and battery manufacturing would be a great example. So those who um, are acting first are going to be the ones who uh, secure their markets. And Canada's really got to think about how are we going to make sure that we have the supply, the supply of clean power, the supply of cleaner fuels, get those secured, uh, the supply of electric vehicles, the supply of batteries, et cetera. And the third, you know, just we all know we've been locked in this polarized debate uh, about climate change, about pipelines, uh, people are exhausted by it, but we've done very little education, as Peter said. People don't really understand. This has been more of a um, opinions and you know a, a political right versus left uh, often about whether you are wanting to move forward with a heat pump or an electric vehicle without really the education about things like affordability. 
you know, or about emissions. You can drive an electric vehicle in any province in the country and your emissions will be lower than if you drove a gas-fired engine. That's just a fact, you know, or even in places like Alberta, Saskatchewan, with a lot of coal-fired electricity, it's still lower emission or affordability. And, you know, what you can save once you've gotten over the hurdle of the purchase, that you're saving $600 to $1,000 a year in terms of operations costs. Obviously, depends on how much you drive your car and where you live, but there's savings to be made there, you know, or that your average electric vehicle has about the same number of moving parts as a sewing machine versus uh, an ICE vehicle with over a thousand, I believe. You know, so the maintenance costs are extremely low for electric vehicles. So that kind of education education and understanding so Canadians can make informed decisions. Those are a few of the challenges that I'm seeing. Yeah, no, that's great. Thanks, Marin. And I couldn't agree more. I think energy literacy uh, and education is something that's sorely lacking on kind of a global or large scale around these types of issues. And I guess, Peter, as you, as you uh, reflect on Marin's comments around the challenges, uh, what mm -hmm. does it you to think about? Yeah, I, I think that uh, if I could build on one of the things she said, which is the industrial strategy, that's necessary. And I would even take it further and say, we just need a holistic strategy, like the big picture strategy. Uh, there's a lot of focus on how many electric vehicles we're selling and what fraction of the total sales. That is only one dimension of the mobility verse, uh, equation for reducing emissions. Remember, we can't stray away from the goal of reducing emissions and just merely selling electric vehicles is only one dimension. As I said, how many vehicles you take out of the fleet is huge because the, 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 the fleet of established combustion engine vehicles, not only in Canada, but worldwide is just huge and it's still growing. Vehicle miles traveled, how many uh, kilometers people commute and so on, uh, hugely important. Uh, in terms of the existing fleet over the course of the next 30 years, because it's going to linger. Today's combustion engine vehicle that is built is going to stay in the fleet because it's much more reliable than it used to be. And so whoever buys it after buying an electric or whoever sells it, and uh, you say, when you change out a combustion vehicle for an electric vehicle, somebody else buys it as a used vehicle. Mm -hmm. And how often they travel with that is a big part of the equation. So anyway, I, it, there's just so many different um, moving parts in this whole thing, and we have to take a holistic view and understanding uh, the thing. Yeah, I agree. And, and uh, you know, as an industry, um, and uh, um, as we're looking at consumers, those choices, and the uh, and the, 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 the all the aspects of the system, consumer choice, mm -hmm. availability, infrastructure, fueling, convenience, and I think behavioral, I think, Marin, you mentioned behavioral uh, as well, is, is, is so important. There's all these dimensions to think through, and we're marching down a, a path of electrification of transportation. That's clear um, through some, through policy choices and also um, uh, uh, manufacturers and consumers. At the same time, we're marching down a path of lower carbon intensive fuels. So investment in that. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, combustion engines are becoming more efficient. And, and how do we balance all of those things? And one of the things I found interesting, um, maybe I'll, I'll 
I'll put this out and maybe it'll spark a uh, bit more of this conversation around choice in the system. You know, Marin, you mentioned Europe and looking over at what's going on in Europe and Norway is an example of a country that's had quite a bit of penetration on, on EVs. Um, matter of fact, I think 60% of their sales are, are, are EVs. It's interesting and behind that, um, most people still have two vehicles. Most people still have an ICE in their garage. And I even read that um, uh, public use of public transport's gone down a little bit because of the penetration of EVs. And so it's interesting to watch, it's the behavior of consumers. Um, I think there's still range anxiety out there and some of that's probably misplaced, but some of it's probably real in a large geography. Um, and, and then trying to think through the infrastructure that supports this. Um, it, it's, it's fascinating to see where other countries are at and versus where we're at right now. And then obviously the United States uh, is starting to talk more seriously about it now too. Um, don't know if there was a question in there, Marin, because yeah. there's a lot to unpack, but sort of as, as you, you spend a lot of time looking at others, uh, you know, in other parts of the world as they're on their journey and then thinking about the Canadian context. Yeah, well, so one thing that we've really noticed is that supply is an issue. So, you know, right now the country doesn't have a zero emission vehicle mandate or, or a standard or something that requires the dealerships to have electric vehicles there and to sell a certain number of them. Um, and so what we're seeing is that British Columbia and Quebec do have that kind of standard. So out of the electric vehicles that come to Canada, almost 80% of them go to British Columbia and Quebec. So we're having sales uh, last year was 9.4% new vehicles were electric vehicles in British Columbia, for example, during the pandemic. Um, so the, the sales are going up there that, you know, we're way above what we expected. That's year two of the ZEV um, standard here in British Columbia. But that means that there's 20%, 22% of the cars go to the entire rest of the country. So if you're in Ontario and you're looking for an electric vehicle, well, likely there isn't going to be one for you. And most people, uh, you know, some people plan a car purchase, but oftentimes, you know, your car breaks down, you get in an accident and you need a car and you can't order one and wait six months or 12 months for the car to show up. And it's also pretty hard to jump into a new technology without getting a chance to try it out. So having some sort of zero emission vehicle mandate um, nationwide would be, in, in my opinion, it's one of the critical pieces of this to help support uh, electric vehicle uptake. And now I think the situation is going to be even more challenging with the United States, uh, the EU, et cetera really driving forward on electric vehicles, that supply is going to go to those countries that have a regulation uh, in place. You could do this with other policy, you could do it with the light duty vehicle regulation, but unfortunately in Canada, we are tied to the United States. So whatever mm -hmm. uh, regulation they make is gonna be what we have. And uh, what we're hearing is it's really not gonna be stringent enough to really drive that EV uptake. Mm -hmm. so that's one thing I would say, but I just want to tie to that, the opportunity again. So, um, you know, you asked before, and I didn't actually get into it, what are the opportunities for Canada? So the, the, the link to that is the opportunity for jobs and the opportunity for us to be making these cars here in Canada. Now, a year ago, 
uh, you know, that was a real challenge because none of the major auto players had announced that they were going to be making EVs. So purchasing EVs meant you were purchasing a car that wasn't made in Canada. But now we have GM, Ford, Stellantis, and they're joining companies like Lion Electric and New Flyer who were already making electric vehicles, electric buses, electric trucks here in Canada. So this is significant. You know, we are now in the game on EV manufacturing and hopefully that trend is going to continue as we've seen it around the world. Um, that's joining other Canadian companies that have been innovators in this space, like Ballard Fuel Cells, who have been making uh, fuel cell powered <laughs> selling, uh, you know, to China, the EU, Scotland. They're doing their fuel uh, hydrogen fuel cell train that's going to be there for the COP uh, this year. So. Uh, we're also seeing things like Amazon um, is buying from uh, Line Electric Bus, 2,500 electric trucks. Um, Ford's going to be making 500 in their Ontario plant for FedEx. So these things are taking off, moving forward. You know, I agree with Peter, this is not going to be a fast transition. This is takes time to swap out the, the auto stock, but we need to do what it's what's required to get that happening. And so one is making sure the supply is there uh, through something like a ZEV standard, uh, through an increased light duty vehicle regulation. And secondly, making sure that we support the demand with incentives, which uh, are in place right now with increased charging to reduce that anxiety and really build out the charging infrastructure uh, and making sure that we start, you know, new builds, uh, condos, making sure that those people have access to charging as well. Okay. So those are, uh, you know, I think the, how, how to move this forward in Canada, I think there's some, you know, things that have been done elsewhere that have really been successful. Um, but again, we need to get moving on these things in Canada or the supply is going to go elsewhere and our transportation emissions are going to go up. And for me, what's critical here is, if you look at all of the emissions that Canada has, some are very difficult to, to, to tackle right now. We don't have the technology to reduce emissions in steel, for example. Um, you know, the hydrogen is not there at a, uh, there isn't enough of it and that some of the technologies are producing it in low carbon ways. We just haven't got that tuned up. But transportation is actually here. It's ready for prime time. And so we need to do what we can do to accelerate this part of the transition while we're waiting for some of those other industrial pro processes to have this the patient in place at a cost competitive way. Sure, and um, the time is going by quickly. I notice it's already, we're almost at our 30 minutes and I'm gonna to transition to Q&A here probably in about five or 10. But Peter, I, I did uh, maybe wanna close this line of yeah. conversation and thought. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Well, um, Marin and I have had long conversations in the past about whether it's got to be a demand pull or a supply push. Um, I favor demand pull. Uh, I'm not so keen on mandating supply of vehicles. I think there has to be the demand first because it really begs the question from my producers of vehicle standpoint, like who's going to pay for the, you know, holding inventory and a lot if people aren't going to buy it. Now I happen to believe, you know, fundamentally, what do consumers want? They want something that has that is better than what they already have at a lower price. 
And I think electric vehicles are starting to satisfy that. The lower price is yet to come in the mainstream, but I think it'll get there over the next few years. So I think the demand is going to probably take care of itself to a point. Okay, I think we are going to hit resistance points in the adoption curve. Uh, at, uh, you know, I'm not quite sure where, but I think this is where the education part comes in. And I think that's a very cheap way, uh, if we start now on the education, of ensuring that the demand pull is, uh, is, is, is robust and has momentum past, I'm going to argue, you know, probably 10 or 15% of sales, 20%, it's not going to be very much. You're going to start to see resistance. Um, so, and we can probe that in questioning if you want. I want to get back to one closure point, and that's this uh, whole Norway thing. Look, Norway has a trillion dollars in the bank and subsidizes the heck out of it, so it's not comparable. And further to that, as a Canadian, I want us to think for ourselves. We need to come up with our own strategy and not, uh, you know, it's okay to sort of see what other people are doing, but... Honestly, we are in a very unique situation, low population base, second biggest country in the world, diversity uh, of everything all across this country from geography to climate to all sorts of uh, uh, economies, uh, where the resources are, so on and so forth. We need our own Made in Canada plan and we need bold enough to lead ourselves through it and the confidence to lead ourselves through it and not say, oh, look at what such and such a country is doing, aren't they wonderful or not? Uh, let's be wonderful ourselves in getting us to the next point and think for ourselves for a change and how to do it. And the good news, as Marin said, you know, we've got it all in this country from resources to manufacturing to skills and expertise, wind, sun, biofuels, oil, gas, you name it, uh, CO2, CO2 capture, the pore space. You know, I can give you a long list of things that uh, are in our favor here. We just need to figure out how to put it all together holistically Marin said industrial strategy. I'll just go even further, say holistic strategy from supply to demand and beyond. Mm -hmm. And we've been spending, uh, maybe I'll ask one more question to get us teed up, teed up and then, um, and then uh, the, the folks at the back, the Empire Club, if, if you could start soliciting the questions from the audience and uh, I'll make sure we, we get those asked. But we spent a lot of time talking about, obviously in this first 20, 25 minutes, electrification and EV. Um, maybe a moment on biofuels and the view of, of biofuels as the solution, low carbon intensity regulations. Obviously, uh, Marin and the province you're sitting in, uh, BCLCFS, has been in place for, for quite a while. Uh, we now have a, a carbon fuel um, standard um, federally that's uh, looking at lowering the intensity. So this isn't about just volumetric blending anymore, uh, which was the name of the game uh, when the first uh, renewable fuel standards were brought in, uh, but now looking at the carbon intensity of the fuels themselves. Uh, and industry is, is spending a lot of time looking at investment in that space and as, a, uh, as one of the solution pathways to lower emissions in the transportation sector and leveraging the infrastructure that we have. But uh, I'd just be interested in your thoughts on, on the role of, of biofuels and in particular low, low CI um, fuels, low, low carbon intensity fuels. Marin, maybe start with you with that question and then uh, pitch it back to Peter. Yeah, so I, you know, I think the clean fuel standard or the low carbon fuel standards are a critical piece of the puzzle. Uh, as we've been talking about, we're going to be driving ICE vehicles for a while. It's going to take uh, a while for those vehicles to come off of the road. So we need to reduce the emissions through 
one, making those cars more efficient, and secondly, making the the fuel that they're burning have less carbon in it. You know, I would say we need to accelerate this. We've been kind of dragging our heels on getting this policy moving forward. And I would love to see uh, the oil companies who are the ones who are stand to benefit from this um, really help to move this forward more quickly rather than slow it down. Uh, you know, otherwise, really electric is the answer. Uh, you know, electric takes us to a near zero emission place. And so, you know, either we've got to get the fuel content, that the carbon content of liquid fuels reduced more quickly with a accelerated clean fuel standard uh, and increase the amount of biofuels in it uh, to as high as we can get. California's, uh, Peter will know what the percentage is. I think it's 16%, but uh, we need to make sure that we're using as much biofuels as we can to reduce the carbon. Um, acknowledging that the, the electric vehicles for are here for the passenger vehicles, so many makes and models, and that the cost is coming down really significantly. We were talking just pre this start of this about the Ford F-150 Lightning, how that's really gonna be a, a game changer for Canadians, uh, an electric F-150. Uh, that's the most popular car in Canada. And if we can start shifting contractors, uh, you know, those who are needing those types of trucks into electric, you know, I think that'll um, help kick the cultural change there as well. Peter? Yeah, well, I mean, this, the clean fuel standard is an important piece of legislation. There's no way we're going to even get to our 2030 ambitions without reducing the carbon intensity of our fuels. Uh, the challenge with biofuels, well, first of all, the positive is uh, we've got uh, an abundance of agriculture. Uh, so that's, uh, that's a fantastic start. The challenge is, is if it creates too much of a pull on agriculture, what that does to the economics of agriculture, the whole uh, food price thing. Uh, if we get into a situation where the clean fuel standard distorts things, you're going to have greater amount of imports from places where we don't know what their emissions profile is. Uh, personally, I'm not in favor of trashing a tropical forest uh, in the name of reducing uh, fuel intensity here, uh, carbon intensity here. So, you know, we've got to think, again, I just come back to a holistic way of thinking about how we're going to approach this. It has to be thought out so that we don't create economic or environmental distortions in other areas uh, as we head towards the pursuit of reducing these emissions. Yeah. You know, as uh, obviously we spent a lot of time thinking, first of all, my company makes biofuels and we blend biofuels and we spent a lot of time as an industry talking about the, uh, the future of biofuels and low CI. And I think part of it is going to be in the investment of technology as well. Um, mm -hmm. Just uh, biofuels as we've done it for the last 20 or 30 years isn't going to get us where we want to go. I think Peter, what you just said, is, and, uh, and, and we have to think about the next step. So for instance, you know, my company's involved, we've been investing quite a bit in what we call second generation biofuels, bio, you know, fuels from waste, fuels from CO2, um, fuels, uh, fuels from, from, uh, from other agricultural waste, waste, agricultural waste. But really at the end of the day, it's, uh, Peter, I liked what you said earlier too, and Marina as well. This is about emissions at the end of the day. And so can we, can we leverage technology sets 
to drive lower emission fuels um, over the longer term. And I think technology still has a big, big part to play in this. We can't rely on the technologies we have. I think we do have advantages as well in Canada around that. But the sad truth is, is right now, we're importing a heck of a lot of biofuel into this country um, because we're not taking advantage of our natural um, advantages. And I think, I think we need to invest in technology differently. Um, so Marin, I see uh, you want to make a point. Well, I think that that really leads us to an important conversation to have today, which is having our oil companies transition to truly be energy companies and look at the full array of fuels uh, and electricity is a key one, hydrogen, and really shifting uh, as we've seen some of the, the oil companies do in Europe and um, start making not small investments, but significant investments in EV charging infrastructure, you know, or offshore wind uh, or other types of energy sets. And I know Suncor has done that in the past, you know, then uh, it has moved on past some of your renewables. But I think that there's really some key indicators that have happened in the last seven days. So we had the, the lawsuit in Amsterdam yesterday with Shell really indicating the responsibility of the company for those emissions. Um, last week, we saw the IEAs, you know, if we are going to uh, meet a 1.5 degree scenario, there's really can't be any more oil uh, exploration, any more oil developments. You know, these are obviously going to be choices by governments and companies, whether they're going to do what the IEA says that scenario needs to be. But I think we're seeing clear indicators that, you know, oil and gas consumption needs to significantly be driven down. As we said, you know, reductions of 55%, 80% and more. But there's, there's opportunities. Again, it's around energy and people still need energy. Energy demand will continue to heat homes, power vehicles. And it's what does that energy look like? What's the new value add? Um, you know, and so for me, I look at the whole system now and go, batteries are the real valuable part of a new energy system. They're not just for electric vehicles and trucks and et cetera, but in, in an electric vehicle, that battery is the most expensive part. The most value is there. The most IP is there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so are we going to be shifting into uh, taking advantage of that and using our metals and minerals, our skilled labor force, our you know, 83% zero emission electricity and the manufacturing batteries for the North American market here, you know, and at a minimum for the Canadian market. Batteries aren't just for vehicles, they're also for electricity systems and, you know, grids, solar, wind, we all know that they that doesn't blow all the time. It's not all the time. And batteries are the key piece and the cost of those batteries have come down in a way that we're seeing renewables taking off. You know, countries are going from coal to renewables. Well, let's be part of that system by being the battery manufacturer for those um, great opportunities for the labor force. Uh, and, you know, with our that the people buying batteries are going to be looking for low carbon products. 
And that's where we, if we actually put together the pieces that we have, could be producers of low carbon uh, and responsible, sustainable battery products. Yeah, I think, and um, and I'm gonna I'm getting some questions in now, and I'm gonna I'm gonna pose a couple of these questions. Maybe start with yourself, Peter, uh, but. Uh, but before I do just the one piece, I do want to pick up, Marin, on the point you made because I entirely agree with it, is, uh, is industry today, the energy industry, the oil and gas industry today, and the critical role uh, we need to play in the transition. And, and, uh, and, and you know, I've talked about Suncor, but, uh, you know, our industry doing thing, is doing things today, such as we have industry members who are investing in co-processing at refineries. So using biofeedstock in refineries to create lower CI fuels, investing in energy, more energy efficient uh, uh, operations, which translate to lower CI fuels, investing in technology around low CI fuels, investing in uh, electrification. Um, some of us are starting to put some investment in that space. Uh, I, I entirely agree with your point. I think it's industry has a big part to play in this, and it's a it's a yes and uh, as well. Um, let me um, let me go to the. I'm getting some questions in, and so this question. Why not? I'll start. I'll pitch it to you, Peter, um, and then uh, Marin, please uh, please add in as well. It's from Tom Markowitz. He says, "What can we do to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from transportation in the next five years? How do we get on the scoreboard?" to show reductions in the next five years. Waiting for electric vehicles and heat pumps will not show definitive, definitive enough reductions in the next five years. Mm -hmm. um, what's your answer to that question, Peter? Well, the next five years is not very long and the penetration rates of electric vehicles is insufficient to really move the needle in the next five years. And also because of the point I made earlier, it's not so much electric vehicle sales, but it's taking vehicles out of the fleet and that's challenging. So in the next five years, it's all uh, behavioral change if you want to move the needle. In other words, um, driving less alternative modes of transportation that are less emittive, if that's a word. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I personally think that, uh, you know, the big, this is going to be a very challenging decade because there's a huge impetus to want to show results, yet the big technological changes that have yet to be commercialized, the big things that are going to happen are probably in the 2030s. So this, this decade is going to be very challenging. And there is going to be uh, a lot of social issues that have to be dealt with, which are the points of resistance. Uh, so I, I think that it's, it's really the next decade that we have to be thinking forward. But we have to think holistically today to think about how the next decade is going to play out. Aaron, how about yourself? How do you... Yeah, I would agree that there's challenges, but I think the thing to focus on in the next decade is medium and heavy duty transportation. They produce a lot more emissions than passenger vehicles. Uh, things like buses are driving 12, 14, 16, 18 hours a day. Um, you know, we've already got uh, zero emission buses available for prime time right now. We should never buy another diesel bus in most places in Canada. Um, other, you know, small delivery trucks. Again, the smaller delivery trucks are now shifting to electric. We see Amazon and FedEx leading the way there. Uh, UPS. Uh, there's opportunities there. Again, some being made in Canada. So those um, 
vehicles in the medium and heavy duty sector that haven't got a lot of attention to date um, and really have only just become ready for prime time in the last uh, months, we need to do what we can to help accelerate fleets, uh, stock turnover and support businesses you know, through uh, incentives, tax breaks, uh, those types of things. And we did see some of that in the federal budget, which was really great to see. Um, things like the mining sector, you know, what can we do to help support the mining sector uh, turn over some of theirs? Those trucks are often running 24 seven. So th those are places in the transportation sector that uh, we're taking a look at and keeping our eye on. Thanks, Mary. So a question from Ryan Levins. Uh, he says, I've heard the phrase, who pays, <laughs> mm -hmm. a couple of times. What do the panelists see as the financial cost to Canadians of getting to net zero? And uh, uh, who'd like to take yeah. that question on first? That's, that's a huge question. Who pays? Uh, it's not only who pays for the new capital stock, but you know, this, I keep coming back to it. It was already meant, you just mentioned it, Chris, is this the existing capital stock that still has a lot of life left in it? Who pay, that has a depreciation schedule that's on the accounting books of companies? Uh, who pays for the uh, decommissioning of equipment that's already purchased? So, you know, imagine in the home context, uh, you've built a house, say, three years ago, you've install a natural gas furnace that's perfectly fine and then somebody comes along and says hey you got to swap that out for a heat pump he says okay well who pays like my my gas furnace is perfectly good and uh, the carbon tax yet is not high enough for me to make that switch that doesn't probably occur till later on in the decade so there's all sorts of dynamics here and uh, the who pays is the biggest one and then from a, a big picture context a canadian context where we get into the big, heavy infrastructure that has to be um, effectively renovated, I'll call it, repiped, rewired. Historically, who pays in terms of building our infrastructure? A lot of it has come from foreign investment through multinational companies. And so we have to understand that we have to make Canada a place that is conducive to foreign investment because with our population base relative to the size of the country and the capital pools that we have in this country, it is insufficient, in my opinion, to undertake a transition of this magnitude without foreign investment. And so we have to put into place a different kind of infrastructure, the infrastructure of finance, the certainty of policy, the certainty and depth of financial markets to be able to give incentive for foreign investors to come here and say, yeah, I can make money by helping Canada renovate its economy to a net zero infrastructure. And, and on that, um, and maybe on this, this theme still, a question came in from uh, Deborah Yedlin. Can you comment on the magnitude for public transportation infrastructure investment needed to support the energy transition in the context of decreasing uh, emissions. Uh, Peter, you touched on a bit, but perhaps Marin, I, I could uh, kind of pitch the same question to you in the context of, of the costs to be borne for the transition, and in particular in the view of the investment needed in infrastructure to support it. 
Yeah, really good question. Um, Peter's covered a lot of it. And so just to add, there's, you know, currently $9 trillion that's committed to net zero investments looking as to where to go in the world. You know, Canada's really um, bemoaned the fact that we've had investment leaving over the last eight years or so. And this is a way to get it back. And Peter's nailed it. You know, we need clear policy um, that is going to give certainty for investors about what would be happening. But there's 127 countries, uh, Canada's one, there's 126 others that have committed to net zero. So there's going to be competition for these uh, in international dollars. We need to actually demonstrate and sell Canada as the place to come to and why we're the place. Now, I'd say we have it all. We have a lot of natural resources. We have, you know, a very clean grid, 83% emission free right now, potential to grow it, a skilled workforce, uh, you know, a good education system. So we have tons of potential here and it is about us acting and really selling ourselves. So the transportation, the public infrastructure, um, some of that, you know, in when we get down uh, to the nitty gritty, uh, the Canada Infrastructure Bank, for example, has put forward a lot of money to help transition transit authorities, uh, which includes to electric buses. Now, they, the, the transit authorities understand that operationally, it is cheaper to run electric buses. Once you've got the, the buses and the infrastructure, your OPEX is going to be lower. And it's, you know, again, as Peter touched on, it's about the financial systems and structuring things for institutions um, through the change. CapEx, OPEX is going to be shifting here. And so we've got to actually take that into account. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, it's going to be a major challenge, I think, in terms of the infrastructure. I think Peter and Marin, you both highlighted the need to think differently of how we invest in the infrastructure in Canada. Because as I think about this, you know, we have a conversation about electrification, which requires massive in investment in, in the infrastructure to support that. Um, all the way from large infrastructure transmission distribution to the infrastructure itself of public transit. And as well, uh, as we talk about biofuels and low carbon fuels, you know, we have billions of dollars of infrastructure that exists today to support a certain energy system for mobility and trans transportation. And as we invest to, to make that infrastructure support that as well too. And so it's quite a, uh, it's quite a um, challenge that we've put in front of ourselves. And I think making smart choices between private and public and getting investment into the country in the way that you both described is, is mm -hmm. exactly right. Um, I did have uh, another question as well, um, and, uh, and uh, Peter, why don't I uh, start with you on this one? It's from Steve uh, Mulvihill. Uh, how does the climate, and very timely, because Marin mentioned the F-150 Lightning, which mm -hmm. President Biden was uh, there uh, unveiling, but how does the climate goals and actions of the Biden administration impact Canada's net zero plan? Yeah, it affects it a lot, um, because what's happening is that the uh, emergence of decarbonization as an industry and bringing decarbonization into the free markets, different types of policies in different states and provinces and even at the federal level in both countries. But what that's done is it's created an, uh, a competitive environment 
In other words, we have to compete. Uh, for example, all the way from uh, uh, carbon capture to to beyond. So, you know, there, actually, the realization is setting in in the oil and gas industry. You know, by the way, I just want to say that the oil and gas industry over the course of the last six months has come out with some pretty spectacular announcements in terms of some of the things they're doing, and uh, have really started to adopt a competitive mindset in understanding the opportunity. Uh, you know, super refreshing. And I think you're going to see a lot of cool things come out of our industry. But more broadly speaking, um, we have to go from talking about decarbonization and think and get away from thinking that the federal government is the be all and end all solution with policy, that it has to, if this is going to work, it's going to be driven by the free market, free market innovation, free market finance, free market capital. The Americans are the pros at understanding that they are the uber competitor and we need to be uh adopt a really competitive mindset and then we'll really get things rolling and actually achieve what marin started out talking about with uh you know seizing the opportunity i think uh we'll we'll leave that as the last word peter because i just looked at the time and this has been a super engaging conversation and marin and peter thank you so much um uh, there's more questions. We just don't have the time to get to them. This is obviously a huge conversation for uh, for Canadians. Uh, but uh, I'd like to thank again uh, both of you for joining me today and also thank the Empire Club for sponsoring this and, uh, and turn it back to Antoinette. So thanks very much. Thank you, Chris. Uh, I was hoping you'd ask more questions. There, there's amazing amounts of questions that have come in. Um, <laughs> I want to thank you, Chris, for doing a great job moderating, um, Peter and Moran, for an engaging conversation around the role of Canada's transportation sector in reaching net zero by 2050. I would now like to introduce Bob LaRock, President and CEO of the Canadian Fuels Association, our partner in delivering this event. Thank you very much, Antoinette. And a very special thanks to our speakers, Chris, Peter, uh, and Marin. And all of you joined us today. When, when we were putting our Fuel for Thought speaker series together, one of our focus was on exploring topics and issues that are important, not only to the transportation sector, but to all Canadians. It's also important to hear from different perspectives so we can broaden our conversation and be more knowledgeable. Today's discussion did just that. We heard about opportunities, we heard about challenges, consumer behavior, education, and even energy literacy. The role of the Canada's transportation to getting to net zero is something we will be hearing about more and more in the future, and we're all better informed after today's event. Looking forward, the Canadian Fuels Association is excited about continuing our partnership with the Empire Club of Canada. The next Fuel for Thought speaker series event will take place in the fall. Stay tuned for announcements on upcoming topics and panelists. Thanks again, Antoinette, and back to you to close out the session. Thank you, Bob. And again, thanks, Chris, Peter, and Marin. And thank you to everybody for joining us today. Uh, coming up next at the Empire Club is a conversation with Ken Hartwick from Ontario Power Generation and CTV news anchor Anita Sharma, titled The Future is Electric. The event will take place on June 16th at noon Eastern Standard Time. Registration is complimentary and more details are available at empireclubofcanada.com. We hope to see you then. 
and this meeting is now adjourned.